Okay, good morning. We are at Battersea Park and the tide is low. The Thames is very low along the bed and I'm here with Paul Kay. This is the Travelling Through Podcast. I'm your host Emma and today's guest is Paul Kay. Paul has lived, worked and travelled greatly in Europe. His love of languages took him to the European Union. He's a cross-country skier and he has also interpreted for Alex Ferguson of Manchester United. This is Paul's story about London, the world and life. Hello Paul. Hi Emma, it's great to see you again. Yeah, and you cycled from which direction to meet me? From I cycled from Kennington, Kennington, so I think I've come the opposite direction from you. You have, I've come from further down the, the river at Wandsworth, so about half an hour's cycle ride, but it's a bit of a misty gloomy day after the weekend when it was really lovely, wasn't it? Was gorgeous, it? So, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So which way shall we walk? Shall we just go up to the pagoda and, yeah. and wander around? I've never actually walked very far in Battersea Park. Do you, do you know the park well? I've spent a lot of time cycling around it in, uh, in lockdown um, because it's within range of uh, my bike yes. for my daily exercise without going too far. So uh, yeah, I've been around it quite a lot. It gets um, very busy, this last year. It? So oh, it's been amazingly busy. The summer busy. was incredible. Yes, <laughs> was it, it was. Lockdown and everybody um, was here. <laughs> the, the first lockdown, it was quite quiet when we were all taking it more seriously, I think, than the second and third lockdowns. Yes, yes. Um, and the second lockdown, when it was the sort of the end of summer and there was some still some nice days, it was absolutely packed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose everybody's trying to get to, at least they are trying to get to the open spaces and enjoy a bit of nature and the open air and yeah. and get the sunshine as well. So where where people were limited to where they could go, in fact. Yes, so. exactly. And it's built up area around here and it's be one of the few places where yes you can get a bit of open space and feel a bit of freedom exactly, rather than being cooped yeah. up in a flat you can properly stretch your leg and stretch your, both your legs even <laughs> <laughs> and, um, a lot uh, of people go running around this park as well i've been stretching my left more than my right actually this Have lockdown you? yeah well, a, why is that? i've got to address that really it's something <laughs> <laughs> you've been going around the hills the wrong way that's a <laughs> scottish thing <laughs> yeah. anyway i was trying to um trying to remember when we first met and I'm pretty sure the shop had opened fairly recently and it was I think it probably was a Saturday because Saturday was generally the day you did come into the shop wasn't it yeah. um, and um, and you came up to, you came up to me and said you've got an awful lot of um, Eastern European titles in the bookshop why is that <laughs> and you caught me out so um, it was I think you'd picked up a Kadari, I'm probably um, pronouncing the Albanian author's name incorrectly, but uh, Ismail Kadari's book, that I think it was The Three Allergies of Kosovo, and I had a couple of other titles of, of his too. Yes, and, um, and there was um, some graphic novels, the uh, Joe Sacco graphic novels from, um, from the ex-Yugoslavia. The safe, safe area garage day, I think, was the one that I, I saw that right, you had as which well. Was, which I think that one was set in, in Bosnia, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was just very impressed. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd moved to Kennington around, it turns out, around about the same time that you opened the shop. So I was in this process of, of discovering the area, the new area that I was living in. Yes. And then I found Lower Marsh and came across the shop and thought, what a wonderful place. <laughs> um, and yes, well, thank in, you. In, indeed it was. And uh, yeah, like a lot of people uh, found, so I wanted to visit as often as I could. <laughs> yeah, and you joined the book club, which you're still involved with, even right. though you're sort of commuting between 
Brussels and, and London. Well, not at the moment you're not. But, uh... Yes, I'm in a funny situation. So my, my job is now based in Brussels and uh, I'd been in London for several years until the end of 2019. Mm. Where I worked for the European Union, the European Commission, and I was based at the London office of the European Commission until the end of 2019. Right. And then my job moved back to Brussels in January last year. Yes. And I was still renting here in London whilst looking for a place to live in Brussels when the pandemic hit and they said right you've all got to work from home and since I hadn't yet moved home from London back to Brussels yeah um, got back on the Eurostar came back to London yes thinking that it would be for a few weeks and uh, a year later here I still am <laughs> yeah. working well, working from my home in London uh, but actually my job is based in Brussels and when the pandemic yeah. eases a bit more then I'll be I'll be going back You'll to Brussels again heading back okay yeah. and your job or your the role of is about promoting European languages, is that correct? That's the, so that's the job I was doing when I was based in London. Yes. Uh, now I'm back to working as a translator. So I worked for several years in Brussels before I came to London in 2014 Yes. as a translator. So my job was translating various administrative, legal, technical documents okay. into English from different languages for the European Commission, so all, all connected to European Union policy making and legislation and so on. Okay. Um, and I'm back to doing that, but when I moved to London in 2014, it was still with the European Commission, but I was in a role where my job was an, an outreach role, uh, where it was helping to promote language learning, helping to promote the language industries, so translation and interpreting and um, promoting various language related initiatives that the European Commission uh, does yes. uh, still in the EU countries, no longer in the UK, unfortunately. Not at all. No. Not now, now that, because it was all linked to the UK being a member of, of the course. EU. Of course, yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so, so that role ended at the end of 2019. Wow. And uh, so I moved then back to Brussels, and it was back into my old job of translating. So sitting in front of a computer all day, um, with a with a piece of paper, a document propped up by the side of the screen. Yes. and trying to figure out how to say that and write that in English onto my computer. Okay. So that's, that's the job now. So um, was there a, um, a transition period between who would take on the role of looking after language and how language was going to be preserved in the UK between Wales, Ireland, Scotland and England and, and where that's, who, who's now going to be ensuring language or languages are retained? Well, it, we, there are already lots of different national bodies in the UK that, that deal with language, promote uh, language learning, uh, deal with language-related issues. So the, the role I was doing was sort of additional okay. from the EU. So it was using the resources of the EU civil service to provide a little bit more support. So we would organise events at our base, which is Europe House in Westminster, where we had a conference area so we organized events on learning different languages or on um, conferences on translation of different kinds and so on so w what we were doing was always sort of additional okay it wasn't replacing yeah. what the UK was already doing right but yes it means that that additional that additional element um, is no longer there right no. okay but uh, I mean there are still plenty of bodies and institutions in the UK that are helping to promote language learning and the language industries yeah and you're, you're, the 
obviously you don't know every language on the sun, but I know you know <laughs> quite a lot. You and you were, seem to be learning more and more as, as the years went on. When I, certainly while I had travelling through. <laughs> yeah, well, and one, 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 one of them I started learning because of an event at travelling through. Oh, that was the Japanese. That's right. It? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. And how long did it take you to learn the language well enough to to then go to Japan? Because I know that was your ultimate goal, wasn't it? To, Yes, I, I, well, with that one, I'd already been thinking that I wanted to start learning an Asian language. Um, a couple of years previously, when I was still in, in Brussels, I'd done a year of evening classes in Korean, but for various reasons, I wasn't able to devote as much time to it. And so I had to stop that. Um, and I also I, I had this idea that, you know, one day I'd like to learn Chinese. And I had this idea that because Japanese uses the Chinese characters that if you learn Japanese it's, a, it's sort of an easy way into learning the Chinese characters and then if you then subsequently learn try to learn Chinese it's uh, it's easier than it would be and a couple of people have told me that yes but Japanese so it wasn't just your theory it wasn't no it wasn't a theory <laughs> but also I'd wanted I think like a lot of people I'd, I'd wanted to for years and years to visit Japan I think it's one of those places that nobody would say they they wouldn't be interested in visiting mm. but because it's on the other side of the world and because I sort of have interest in other countries and languages and so on, I'd never got round to it. Yeah, yeah. And then when I went to uh, the event at Travelling Through with um, Leslie... Leslie Downer. Leslie Downer, yes. that's it. And it, she gave this absolutely wonderful presentation about the tradition of pilgrimage and long-distance walking in mm -hmm. Japan. And I, I'm really keen on hiking and walking and, and so on. And I, I was blown away by uh, the things she was presenting I thought right that's it I've got to go to Japan <laughs> not just be something that you say yeah one day I'll go yes and that tied in with already wanting to be learning an Asian language mm -hmm. so and because I, I whenever I go to places I like to be able to say a few things at least or to be starting to get a handle on the language yes yes and so I decided to sign up for for language classes at um, Morley College which is okay, just down the road, just down the road yeah. from uh, from the shop and from where I live so it all came together like that really and then I think it was within the first year or so that I that I went to Japan for the first time mm -hmm. and I could make out a few things but um, and I, I couldn't have conversations but it was right. there was certainly there's an element of familiarity and whenever you, you hear a scrap of conversation or you see something on a poster or or in a book or whatever whatever it is yes. in, in the in the environment when you're there you get that nice satisfaction so oh, yes I recognize that and I've learned that Yes. But it's a tough language. I mean, yes. I, I haven't learned it. I've okay. been, I've been, I did three years of language classes after after that um, after that event. Yeah. Um, and then last year, when I went back to Brussels <laughs> for yeah. what turned out to be just a few weeks, I, I stopped the classes, and I'm now I'm I'm working through this app where you can learn the Chinese characters, um, and I'm doing that kind of more more or less passively. So it's on it's on a bit of a yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a hiatus at the and moment. And has, has it helped from? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly with within that time, I've I've got quite a good familiarity with it. I went last just over a year ago. That was my well, that was my second trip, mm -hmm. and uh, I was I was starting to have uh, very very basic interactions, conversational interactions okay. with people. Yeah. And actually, I was supposed to go again last year. I managed to get uh, tickets for the Olympics. <laughs> and and I, I was going to take my nephew so that was my my birthday and Christmas present to him was I was oh, going to take no. him 
to Tokyo to the Olympics and we were going yes. to have a holiday out there and that was supposed to be last summer so that that had kept the momentum up for learning of course, yes. and then of course that was called off so that's partly responsible for the dip in my motivation recently but uh, is I'm still hoping we're going to be able to go this summer. Yes, it's, not I, it's sure still, still a big question mark over it, isn't it? Is yes, a, Japan a, isn't allowing anybody in at the moment, and certainly not from uh, countries like ours that have got very high infection rates. So mm. I'll have to see what will happen, whether, yeah. whether for the Olympics they'll allow some arrangement where if you can show that you've had a vaccine, they'll let you in. Or, I'm not sure yet. So I'm, yes. I'm, I'm assuming that we're not going to be able to go and if it turns out that we can then that will be a nice surprise. Yeah, yes. But coming back to languages, you spent quite a bit of time in Eastern Europe, in Slovakia and the Czech Republic. That's right, yeah. And also Poland was it as, as well? Or? Yeah. So do you have a, a solid knowledge and understanding and speaking knowledge of, of all these languages? Yeah, well as a, tr as a translator, so a written translator, um, we only have to read what we need to understand and we rarely have to speak it for our job so an, okay. in, an interpreter is the one that uh, the person who needs to speak other languages so I always say that when people ask me how many languages do you speak I always say well I know more than I speak <laughs> because I can read several <laughs> can read that, more, that I'm yeah. not so confident speaking yes, or, yeah. or I would need a bit more time and a little bit more immersion speaking but yes, um, yeah. At school, I, I did French and I was pretty good at it. It was my best subject, but I ended up studying science at A-level and then at university. And then I was very lucky at university. I managed to blag my way onto a course that gave me a year abroad studying biology in, uh, in France. Okay. When my A-level results hadn't justified me being on that course, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, somebody dropped out and I managed to get on in their place, even though I hadn't really earned it with the, with the grades so I, I went to France for a year when I was an undergraduate and that really brought my level of French up. Which part of France were you in? I was in Grenoble in the southeast okay. on the edge of the Alps. Very nice yes. Yeah it's a very interesting city a very nice place and then I came back and finished university and then um, did various sort of bits of travel and temping jobs and working in a pub and I worked in a toilet roll factory in my hometown <laughs> for a while. Did you have links to get extra, extra rolls? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go short a year ago. <laughs> yeah, but eventually I thought, well, what do I want to do? I, I wanted to do some more travel, but I didn't want to just it to be aimless travel. I wanted to do something a bit more productive along the way. Yes. So um, I came down to London for a month. That was actually the first time really I got to know London, mm -hmm. other than a couple of tourist trips. When you um, say you came down, so that was from... Um... So I was living in Bolton, my hometown, mm. back, back with my parents at that point. Yes. Um, and I decided I was going to train to be an English teacher, to teach English okay. uh, abroad. TEFL, teaching English as yes. a foreign language. So I came and did a month-long course at a school in Kensington. The school offered anybody that passed their course, they, they guaranteed you a job mm. in one of their partner schools in what we used to call Eastern Europe, but I guess now Central and Eastern Europe. Yes. It was the early 90s and so after the fall of the Berlin Wall, these countries had, were suddenly shifting their education systems to learning English rather than Russian. Yes, and so there was yes. this huge demand for, okay. for English teachers. This place in Kensington had uh, a lot of jobs going in their partner schools and they had a particularly high number of jobs going in Slovakia they had a partnership with a whole chain of schools across the whole country yeah and at that point I was dead set on learning 
Hungarian actually okay because I knew it was a non-indo-european language so not not related to almost any other European language yes and I thought it sounded exotic and I thought it'd be quite cool to learn a language <laughs> like that that not many other people knew yeah and this school in Kensington did have some places at a partner school in Hungary but on the TEFL course this month-long course I sort of fell for uh, one of the fellow trainee teachers yeah um, and she'd already been allocated to go to a school in Slovakia right and so I thought oh well maybe Slovakia yeah. and also I really love mountains and, and mountain walking and mountain climbing and Slovakia yeah. is a mountainous country I discovered I didn't really know yes, anything about it, it. whereas Hungary I thought was relatively flat and I've since got to know Hungary's mountains a little bit yes. um, uh, but anyway I ended up teaching English in Bratislava in Slovakia okay and uh, when I got there I threw myself into learning the Slovak language the, the local language there yes and I just really loved it by the end of my year of teaching I didn't want to leave in nine months I'd made quite a lot of progress I got fairly conversationally fluent and I was really keen to properly master it and become yeah. really very very fluent uh, but I realized I couldn't do that whilst I was teaching English because everybody wanted to speak English, English course, to me yes but I was lucky then that I got a job working for the Slovak national radio broadcaster. They were setting up their foreign broadcasting service. Slovakia was only a few months old at that point. Yes. Czechoslovakia yes. had split into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So they were setting up this new foreign broadcasting service, their equivalent of the BBC World Service. Mm -hmm. And they had an English language department that had a, a half hour a day broadcast on shortwave and I got a job working working in that department so I, I became a radio broadcaster with absolutely no experience whatsoever <laughs> well done no idea what I was doing but because I was the native English speaker and they needed somebody to correct their scripts most, yes, most yes. of the staff of that department were, were Slovak so they needed people to correct their scripts but also to be an, an English voice yes. on the broadcast as yeah. well so I, I had the Sunday broadcast so yeah I had to, really? I had to create half yeah <laughs> and what it did was, you it talk was about it? well each day had a theme yeah. And the Sunday programme was the mixed bag. So every, every two weeks we had the reader's letters. Yeah. And the, the reader's letters were very interesting. This is well before the internet and before internet broadcasting. So people could only listen to us on shortwave. Okay. And we, we had people in, in China and South America. I mean, all Ameri quite a lot of Americans of Slovak heritage who would be listening into the broadcast because they, they wanted to hear about what was happening in their ancestral country yeah so I did that and that, that was every couple of weeks I, I did various different things I was interested in folk music so once I went to uh, one of Slovakia's big folk music festivals and I I did a big piece uh, from there interviewed musicians and the organizers and the people who made these instruments yeah yeah so it was a real opportunity for you to actually travel a bit around Slovakia it, it was perfect I got see. to I got to travel around the country as part of this job and learn more about the country yes whilst practicing the language as well because on air I, ha I had to speak English yes but everything else I had to do in Slovak so going to the canteen going to the record library and taking out records to play on the program yeah um, I had to do all of that in Slovak picking up my wages everything in Slovak <laughs> so so that really got my level going yeah yes and through that through the contacts there also I started to get offered other work so I got offered some voiceover work a lot of them were, were Slovak companies that had products that they wanted suddenly to sell to the West. Okay. So they were creating little promotional videos and they needed somebody to narrate these videos. And then eventually I started being the one that would translate the scripts right. of these things from Slovak into English. So 
that's when I first started to do translation. Okay. How many years were you in Slovakia then? I was there three and a half years, mm-hmm. or just under three and a half years. But in my in my consciousness, it, it, it feels like a much longer time. Yeah. It was a real, it was a seminal period in my life, really. I sort of did a lot of growing up. I was I was still very green, really, when I went there. Yeah. Naive about a lot of things, and about myself, and I sort of there was a lot of self-understanding I went through and quite a thrilling time in the life of this new country yeah, as well so, so yeah only three and a half years but it feels like more yeah, and I, and I yeah. came out of it with this knowledge of the Slovak language which ultimately many years later because I went into I went into journalism and didn't use my languages very much for 10 years um, but many years later it meant that I then had um, the material that I could apply for work as a translator with the European Union with yes and that, that sense of being there for much longer probably had a lot to do with the fact you're immersing yourself in a completely different culture, yeah. a different way of being and thinking, as well as the language and music and everything. So it's so almost like a being reborn, as it were, yeah. in, a, in a good way, I imagine. Yeah. No, it, yeah, it was, absolutely. It felt like that. It was like discovering a whole new side of of world culture i mean now with the cheap flight revolution and slovakia is a member of the eu and of course it's a european country and it it doesn't feel so foreign now but back then at least to me who had only been to i think i'd only been to france and maybe germany mm-hmm. at, at that point okay and you know, spent we spent most of our holidays when i was a child in this country yes yeah, um you know so i hadn't done an awful lot of foreign travel and then to go to this place that had been behind the Iron Curtain, yeah. shrouded in mystery to most people, yeah. and now had opened up, and it felt very, very different. Uh, and there were some elements of that which were really appealing. Yeah. The people were lovely, really sort of intelligent, interesting, engaged, witty, funny, a sense of humour, a really yeah. earthy sense of humour with uh, sort of this wry wit, which feels very close to our... British sense of humour. Yes. So I just fell in love with the whole place, the people, the countryside, this mm-hmm. you know, beautiful green mountainous country. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I found it uh, too appealing to leave after a year. So I string a little bit of research about you, Paul, <laughs> and, I, and I noticed and I had no idea that you had published a number of books, one of which was cycling the border between the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Slovakia yeah. What inspired that journey? Yeah, that was um, yeah all self-published, I should say. Self-published, that's a good thing. <laughs> self-published, they're, yes. they're, they're, they're photo books. Yes. They're, yeah, they're like photo photo essays, photo reportage. Yes. With lots of photographs and um, yeah and text alongside them. Yeah, well, that actually that was the th- I think that was the third one of the three that I've done. The first one I did was riding down the River Danube. Okay. Um, Bratislava's on the River Danube, and when I lived there, I lived on the on a housing estate on the other side of the river from the, from the main centre and I used to cross the river every day and we used to do bicycle rides up, up and down the river either towards Austria and Vienna one yes. direction or, or towards Hungary in the other direction from Bratislava and I said to myself oh, one day I'd love to cycle down the entire river from where it rises in the hills in, in the Black Forest yes. right onto the delta right. uh, on the Black Sea. I think, in fact that, there were two books, two Cicerone guides of riding cycleway of the Danube. Yes. That always inspired me. If I'd known that you'd done that, <laughs> then I would have picked your brains before now. But anyway. <laughs> when, I, when I did it, it was 2004, and it was only the first volume was available at that point. Was it? Okay. Yeah, and I used that as far as Budapest, I think it went. Yes. 
uh, and then I had to kind of make it up for the rest of it but uh, I just got the best maps I could along the route and yes my rule was wherever I could I'd take the road that went closest to the river yes um, so how much of that journey was actually by the river most of it yeah yeah there was very rarely any sections where you had to go very far from the river okay all the way down so I did that and I kind of put together a, a photo book from that with some of my impressions yes but that was more for myself really but then Whilst living in Slovakia, in Bratislava in particular, Bratislava is right on the western border of Slovakia, on the border with Austria. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved there and I was living on this housing estate, which was literally the edge of the estate, a few more yards, and it was the, the Austrian border. Yes. And by then, of course, we could, we could travel into Austria. But seeing the difference, the material difference yeah, in, yeah. The, in the state of the country on one side and the other side, I got very interested in this divide between east and west, communist yep. and capitalist and so on. And um, when it was coming up to the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, yes. I wanted somehow to do, to do some kind of project journalistically. At that point, I was working as a journalist, okay. as a policy journalist in environment policy. In uh, this country then? In, that I was in Brussels by then. In Brussels, yeah, okay. that, that's how I ended up in Brussels, um, working as a journalist on environment policy. Um, and I wanted to do something journalistic, and I was very keen on photography and very keen on bicycle riding and long distance bicycle riding. So I decided to combine them yes. by doing this ride along the Iron Curtain. I did it from north to south and I went uh, from near Lübeck on the border between the old East and West Germany yes. down to Trieste on the border between the old Yugoslavia, oh, yeah. Slovenia yes. and Italy. Yeah. And then from there I got a train to Berlin and I cycled around the route of the old Berlin Wall. Yeah. I did a book about that and I, I spoke to people on the way and I interviewed as many people as I could with the languages I had at the time. <laughs> Which one? Uh, what were your languages at the time? Well, I, I wasn't with German. I, I've never been that good at German, but I was able to sort of put together some questions in advance and okay. I got an English friend who speaks really good German and she gave me some German-speaking practice. Yeah. So with the German, I had just enough to put questions to people yeah. and to listen to the answers and I could understand enough of the answers to know what the next question was. Okay. And I was recording all this at the time. Oh, so in brilliant. terms of understanding so, everything, yes. in terms of then using the quotes for the purposes of the book, then I would go off the recording. Yes. So I did, had just enough German and then the route comes into uh, Czech Republic. Yes. And Czech is very similar to Slovak. I've never lived in the Czech Republic, but if you learn Slovak, it's almost like learning Czech as well. It doesn't take you yes. um, much to, to understand that. So I could, so I could speak to Czechs, mm -hmm. and then, this, then the route goes along that stretch near Bratislava, where I used to live. Yes. So I was okay there, and then the route hits Hungary. Okay. Um, and there's a long section where the the old Iron Curtain was between Hungary and Austria, and I didn't know any Hungarian at all at that point. So that was a <laughs> bit of a black hole. I have since. Since then, I've learned Hungarian f for Have work. Have you really? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, the, the, it was the place was on I, the cards, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I don't, I'd always <laughs> wanted to, yeah, so I ended up coming back to it. So I, 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 could, I could, now I could speak to people, but then I couldn't really. Mm -hmm. And because it was going through very uh, rural areas, actually, yes. this idea that wherever you go in Europe, everybody speaks English is really not the case no, even now. No, it is and, not. And um, in that rural, isolated area of Western Hungary along the border with Austria, I, I, I find very few people that I could communicate with. So that, that was a bit of a black hole in my, uh, in my journalistic endeavour because I yes. couldn't really get any impressions from there. And then there's the border with Slovenia. Slovenia was a bit better. More people spoke English and I could understand a bit of Slovenian because it's a Slavic language, yeah. not too far away from Slovak. 
and then the final stretch is along the border with Italy and I don't speak Italian at all so that was also a place I couldn't really communicate with people mm -hmm. so but with French you can kind of get a understanding but you can't I can necessarily sort of, speak it yes I, can, I certainly can't speak it um, I, I can understand some written Italian yes but yeah I, I didn't I just didn't have enough of a level with Italian yes. and and actually there's not so much of a stretch of that journey which involves Italy okay um, that it felt worth trying to put some effort into learning it so this photographic kind of cycling memoir almost yeah travel memoir is called it's called I call it fragments fragments okay and and the idea was to document in the photographs what remains physically yes. of that time of division so yeah. rusting rusting fences disused watchtowers things yeah. like that and there's quite a lot particularly on the old border between Germany western east Germany yeah but all along yeah. there is lots of things did you find but, um, when you spoke to people uh, and, and about that that people were open at that time to talk? I suppose it was twenty years on, so probably more so than if it had been two years on. Or yeah, it was twenty years on, and they were actually, and and that was the second part of what I wanted to do was to to document what what remained in people's heads of that yes, time. Yes, yes. Um, and there was quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, people still had a bit of distrust of those on the other side on either side of this inner German border, as they called it, there, there was still a lack of communication sometimes. Even 20 years on? Even 20 wow. years on, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's interesting. Um, mind you, you know, you come to London and sometimes people don't speak to the next no, door neighbours. So that's it's, very you know, it's true. Not, it's not, uh, <laughs> no, it until is. the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suddenly got to know all my neighbours in the last year. It's, it's yes, one of the, that's been one where, of the great things. Where about. you live, you had a... Wasn't your street or your square on TV or something for doing a... A gym workout. Yeah, one of, one of the one of the neighbours on the square is a really keen uh, keep fit guy, and he's he's quite a um, yeah he's a big character, big personality, and he started I think even in just even in the first week of lockdown, he wanted to keep our spirits up, so he said he's going to do a doorstep exercise session. So we all stand on our doorstep, <laughs> so we're f physically distanced. Yeah. And uh, he would lead us through this routine, which ended up we ended up doing it twice a week. Did you really? And, Did you get uh, and yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think, it, I mean, as well as keeping us physically fit, it also meant that, you know, we were all coming out and seeing our neighbours and yes. it was a good laugh yeah. and it, it led to other things and eventually we did a charity version of it where we, we raised over £10,000 for, for some local charities, including the um, Vauxhall City Farm. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, a so good community it, effort, then, yeah, all right. yeah. I mean, as well as getting you all fit and also mentally. Uh, absolutely, I, mean, I'm, I don't know it? what mentally what kind of state I would be in over the last year if we hadn't had that thing that's been binding the the, the neighbourhood together yes. and the community together, and meaning that we've all got to know each other. Now I go out to the front door to do my weekly shop or whatever it is, or to go for a walk or a run, and. Uh, almost every time I go out there's somebody that you're saying hello to because you now know them when you yeah, didn't before yes. yeah yes and it's wonderful I'm it's sure that's of, happened in quite a few areas around, yeah, must around have London done. must have done yeah and it, it's how things should be really all the time definitely yeah. and how it used to be I think yes just for, yeah for a long time I mean when I first moved into my area in South London the gardens all the fences were actually at waist height so like a meter a meter high mm. so everybody talked to everybody but over the years, as the older generation moved out or passed on or whatever, and the younger generation came in, 
the fences got higher and higher and now they're like two meters and now you can't see your neighbors and it's extraordinary isn't it how this idea of wanting community and yet also wanting complete so-called privacy which is actually ridiculous because half the street are flats so you can see into people's gardens anyway from your flat window <laughs> but it's that idea of not wanting to talk to people mm. it's uh it's very sad in some ways and then I mean, especially I noticed it more having been away abroad in in the Balkans where everybody talks to everybody, even, you know, even the, on the aeroplane going to Kosovo, it's like being on a, in a cafe, but a, a cafe in the air. Mm. Everybody was up chatting to everybody else. Nobody sat down at all. Yeah. It was lovely. A lot of cultures and, and countries do find it a lot easier to just talk to strangers than I think we do in this country. Yeah, yeah. And it's so important. Yeah. Actually, I just read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. I think it's his latest okay. book. Yes. It goes into those sorts of things Does about, about yeah, how, 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 we, how, we, um, how we misjudge strangers. But yeah, I think, it's, I think it's one of the best things we can do is talk to strangers. But Definitely. Something about the way the world is working and something about the way that social media is working means that we do that less and less because people seem to be more and more comfortable with interaction through a screen. Yeah. And they interact with strangers, but, you know, it's with a stranger's Twitter account on Twitter or on Instagram or or yes. whatever but yes. uh, actually totally just face to face talking to a stranger striking up a conversation it can, it can be a very um, rewarding experience it I, think can. I think it's always a good idea to do that yes I mean sometimes it's even difficult to catch somebody's eye to even say hello or good morning to because they're so just either got the head down yes. or they're looking at a screen or they've yeah. got headphones on Actually, that was one thing in the shop that, generally speaking, we would always make a point of saying, hello, good morning, or is there anything we could help you with? So it meant that people took off their, or took out their earphones and then would quite often happily strike up a conversation. Mm. But you just had to create that invitation to them that, yes, let's let's talk. And most people were very happy to. You'd have the odd one who, who didn't want to, but um, they were almost surprised that, you wanted to talk to them and ask them, oh, were, they, were they all right? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it is hard sometimes to break through that barrier, particularly if you're just walking down down the street. But, um, it's it's f- fear of initiating, isn't it? That means yes. most people tend tend not to. It, no. It's interesting you say about the shop. It's something I notice um, when I go to Poland. So as, as part of my job as a translator now, I've been lucky to learn Polish with the, with the courses that we get from my employer. And I spent quite a bit of time in Poland, never lived there, but going there for language immersion classes. But also I go there for holidays because I just like being there. Yes. And when you go into a shop in Poland, everybody says hello in yeah. the shop, any kind of shop, if it's a supermarket or something. Everybody will say hello when you come in and, 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 the, and they will say goodbye, goodbye when, when you go out. Yes. Yes. Um, it's strange when that doesn't happen. I think that's great. It I think is. It's great that they've managed, they've retained that. It's well, it's acknowledging. Um, the human being that's just walked yes. into your shop yes. and thanking them for coming in and thanking them for looking around and perhaps they haven't bought anything but they'll remember you if you say thank you and have a good day or whatever and also you're no longer invisible and mm. I think it's important not to be invisible I don't know maybe I'm old-fashioned <laughs> I think you and me both but uh, I think there's a place for old-fashionedness <laughs> yeah so we come back from um, I, I went off a complete tangent and I didn't tell you about the, the Czech and Slovak border book. That so, was more of a chronological thing. The, the Fragments book, which was about the old east-west border, the, the, the Iron Curtain yes, border. Yeah. 
uh, that's sort of the longest one, the one that I've put most into and the one I'm proudest of, I guess. It had a good reception. I mean, not huge sales. It was only self-published and for various reasons I couldn't promote it um, as, as much as I would have done otherwise. But yeah. um, then a couple of years later, it was coming up to the 20th anniversary of the split of Czechoslovakia yes. um, into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And so I wanted to do something similar to mark that uh, that point and that anniversary because I felt even closer to that old Czechoslovakia having lived in the Slovak bit of it and by then knowing the Czech language pretty well. So my initial plan was to walk or hike the border between the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So the, the interesting thing about that, there... How long is that border? Oh, three or four hundred kilometres, okay. two or three hundred kilometres. So quite a way. It's quite, yeah, I mean, it's not huge, quite, it's quite a distance. Yeah. But the interesting thing is where, where the Iron Curtain uh, bike ride, what I was doing there was going along a border which no longer existed. I mean, they were made up of national borders which still existed. But in terms of the division between East and West Europe and, and the Iron Curtain, that was a border that had been there and wasn't there, and I was looking for traces of it. Right. Whereas the border between the Czech Republic and Slovakia was a new border which hadn't been there for all the time that Czechoslovakia existed. Yeah. And so this was now a new border. Okay. So it was the opposite case. Oh, wow. Although, yeah. in fact, because of the history of those countries, that border between the Czech Republic and Slovakia actually had a much older history. Mm-hmm. And at one point, because what is now Slovakia used to be part of Hungary and what is now the Czech Republic used to be part of Austria and they came together yeah. in Austro-Hungary. Okay, but yeah, before no. that, they weren't part of each other. So even though Czech Republic and Slovakia speak very similar languages and they've got in some ways quite similar traditions and so on, actually for most of their history until the early 20th century, yeah. they didn't have a history of being in the same state. Okay, actually, so it was only Czechoslovakia, which existed from 1918 to 1993, that they were together. Yeah. So that, that was the idea of that. Uh, my plan was to hike, but the thing is that border really does go along through these very remote hills. Okay. And uh, there's, there's virtually nowhere right on the border line, which I wanted to follow. There's very little in the way of facilities. So it was either going to be take a tent, camp Camping every night, all take, all your, yeah. take all your food with you and, uh, and do the hike that way. And I considered it, but one, I didn't have the, sort of the time that I would need to take off yeah. to do it. I was also, I wasn't too keen on carrying this huge rucksack with all my stuff, <laughs> just with the objective of following the, the very line of the border. Yes. But also, because it's very remote, I thought I probably won't come across that many people. <laughs> and the, the idea was to also talk to people of course, on yes, both sides of the border. And, get, and, you know, 20 years on, Czechoslovakia is no more. What are your feelings about it? Yeah. People on the Czech side, people on the Slovak side. So I did it as a bike ride again. And there were bits where I was able to sort of cycle on the rough ground that was following the very border line on the, on the ridge of the hills yes but most of the time I was actually kind of going down into the valley either side of this line of hills on the Czech side on the Slovak side and I managed to sort of meet lots of people on either side yes as well as tracing a line roughly along the border okay. and yeah asking them how do you feel about it and and the overwhelming feeling was people said oh I don't um, I don't feel Czech or I don't feel Slovak I feel Czech or Slovak so a lot of yeah. people because a lot of the people I spoke to had lived in that border area most of their lives. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The border area people are probably the those who actually embrace both yeah. cultures, as it were, or probably yes. have intermarried, as it were. So they wouldn't have that defined feeling of being one or the other, I imagine. Yes, um, yeah. And because they were geographically closer to 
the other country because it was just on the other side of the border. Yeah. So closer to to the other country than than to their national capital, say. Yeah. Um, they felt more an affinity with the other side okay. than maybe even some people in their own country. Yeah. Yes. So um, a lot of I mean there were there were a handful of people that I met that said oh no it's you know it's a great thing you know I. I'm not keen on the Slovaks or some Slovaks said I'm not keen on the Czechs but <laughs> most people said oh I still feel Czechoslovak I still feel like we're one country yes you knew that Gita who who made our our cakes at Travelling Through she was Slovak yeah I'm not sure I ever met her Did I, you not? I, I definitely ate her cake I'm not sure I met her <laughs> <laughs> yeah beautiful and they were lovely yeah, yeah yeah so that was the last book I did yes a couple of years ago well, a few years ago now I cycled down the river Vistula in Poland so it's sort of the it's the longest river in Poland and it's the river is entirely located within Poland and it's it's like the backbone of the country and it flows through Krakow and Warsaw and goes into the sea at Gdansk so it's a real culturally and geographically central part of the of the country yeah. and um, I, I had a couple of week holiday cycling down that and that was a fabulous thing and I took lots of photographs and I spoke to people and my plan was to uh, to do some kind of book about that, but then um, I lost a memory card on which a big oh, chunk no. of the photographs were on, and uh, and that took the wind out of of course out yes. of my sails entirely. I did I did a few years later. I then did find the memory card. It was actually when I was moving from from Brussels to come to London. Yeah. And I was having to clear up my my stuff and move out, and I came across this memory card. <laughs> oh my goodness! It was like the back of a oh, bookcase or something. Oh, thank goodness for that. that you so I've got it, but. It. It's yeah, just, I haven't you've since lost the then. Momentum I've lo- I lost the momentum. I I will do it one day. So these books that, if the podcasters are interested to have a look, they're on Blurb, isn't it? The the uh, website, and we'll yeah. put the, we'll put the links in the in the show notes so that people can can look the books up. That would be great. Then, Thanks. Yeah, it's and uh, buy them if they wish. <laughs> it's uh, it's a self-publishing photo book system. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I've published them through that. Uh, Are there any insights into what's inside the books anywhere? That have you I think you th- I think you can do a preview okay. on the website. Oh, yeah, so you it. can look through and yeah, Brilliant. you can decide whether it's a load of rubbish and you're not going to waste your money. <laughs> 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 okay, well, hopefully that won't and, be the and, case. And <laughs> uh, I think you, there's also an ebook version as well, which is much cheaper because it's print on demand. Yes. And yep. because it's a photo book, they're they're they're, they're not cheap. No. I mean, I I, yeah. I don't see any of the money. Um, or a tiny, a tiny, a very yeah. little, it, it's really a minute percentage, uh, really minute yes. margin. Yes, um, that's the thing with photographic books, isn't it? Um, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I got. Um, you, you have to reach a threshold where you've accumulated enough that you get an email from Blurb that says uh, uh, we have a payment to give you. I think it was about twenty pounds, and. Um, and I think that's the first email I had for about four years, probably, oh, really? or something. Yeah. So. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of almost forgotten about them. Really, so. <laughs> well, maybe there'll uh, be a spike after this podcast. You never know. Yeah, so. they come out pretty good quality, actually. It's the, they're, yeah. it's, they're nicely produced. Yeah, um, they tend to be on the dear side. But, but it's, um, it's also it's documenting a mo- another moment in time. So that was what year was that? So that's uh, they they. 20 years on. So, so that last one, the, the Czech Slovak one, I called that the Velvet Border. Yeah. So sort of after the Velvet Revolution, which is what, what they called in 1989 when, yeah. when the Czechoslovakia sort of overthrew the communists. Um, that was the 20th anniversary of yeah. the, well, that was the 20th That's anniversary of the, uh, well, no, it was the 21st, uh, 20th anniversary of the split of Czechoslovakia, which happened on the 1st of January 1993. 93, okay. So that was. Uh, yeah, 2013 then. 
uh, yeah, eight years ago. Now. Yeah. Um, that one. And um, the other one, Fragments, which was the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Which was, uh, that was 89. That was 89. It? So yeah. that, yeah, I did the bike 89. ride for that in October, autumn, October, November uh, 2008. Yes. And then that gave me enough time to process all the photographs and the, all the material I'd got into a book which came out then in the following year, 2009, okay. for the 20th anniversary. Coming back to your time in Brussels, the difference between translation and interpretation. Yes. And why you go down one route and not the other. Yes. Just, yeah. <laughs> what, what makes you... Is it, it's obviously between whether you read or you speak, but why go down that route rather than the other route? That's or a good question. Some people like doing both. I've done a bit of interpreting. In fact, my, my best ever job, my favourite ever job, was an interpreting job. I had just come back from living in Slovakia. So at mm -hmm. the end of that three and a half years there, I came back to the UK, back, back to live in Bolton again. I set myself up as a freelance translator and interpreter, if needed, of Slovak and Czech. Um, and I, I wanted to earn the money to do a master's degree then. That was, that was the idea of it. I hadn't thought about it, translation interpreting then as a, as a career. It was just a, a means of earning some money to do a master's. Yes. And I got various translation jobs, so the written translation through agencies. And then I saw in the Champions League, I'm a football fan, uh, I saw that uh, Manchester United, a nearby team, not my team, I spot Bolton Wanderers. Okay. But Manchester United were drawn to play a team from Slovakia in the Champions League. And so I rang Manchester United up, and you could do that in those days, this was 1997. <laughs> and I just said, uh, I see you're playing a, a team from Slovakia in the Champions League. I'm a translator and interpreter of Slovak. Is there any work, anything you need doing? And they, they called me in. Yeah. Um, the, the club secretary called me in and I had a chat with him. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll take you on, we'll get you. So, so, um, <laughs> so I, I did three days of interpreting during this Champions League fixture with Manchester United. Yeah. So the, the day or two before the match, I had to interpret at a pre-match dinner yes. with the board of directors of the two clubs. Okay. And so that included having to interpret oh, for Bobby Charlton, who was the director of Manchester yes. United. Um, during the match, I had to be in the announcer's booth because they have to have somebody that can speak the language of the visiting fans yep. in case of an emergency. Yes. So I was in the announcer's booth during the match okay. and before the match was just about to start, the announcer, she said, can, can you just write out in Slovak, how would you say, welcome to Old Trafford, you know, etc, etc. Um, so I, I wrote it in Slovak and, and I sort of showed it to her and she said, no, no, no. And she handed me the microphone and said, no, no, go on. <laughs> You've got to say it. Oh my goodness. And so, uh, so I took this microphone and said in, in Slovak, you know, yeah. welcome to the fans from Slovakia. Welcome to Old Trafford, Manchester, Manchester, Manchester. Welcome to Old Trafford. We hope we're going to have a fantastic match this evening. Um, hope you enjoy it and stay safe. And when you, you know, go home, have good travel, you know, happy travels back. And uh, I hear my voice booming <laughs> out around uh, Old Trafford. It was quite, wow. quite an experience. Yes. But then because um, I think this team from Slovakia, they, it, I think it was their first time in the Champions League. So, and they hadn't been yet to anywhere like Old Trafford. Yes. Uh, so it was quite an occasion. And yes. I don't think they'd heard maybe somebody welcoming them in, the, in their language in yeah. this foreign country from their point of view. And so they, they just started clapping. And oh, so there was, like, there was this 
this, this sort of peal of applause came back up off the terraces oh, and, wow. and wafted into our announcers booth. It was, it was quite an experience. Yes, yeah, well done, um, and then, And then after the match, I had to do the post-match press conference with Alex Ferguson. The Slovak team had brought their own interpreter. Yes. And it was his job, in theory, to be doing any interpreting from English into Slovak because yeah. there were a handful of Slovak journalists there. Yes. So in the post-match press conference, uh, he was supposed to be interpreting Alex Ferguson into Slovak for the visiting Slovaks. Right. And I was supposed to interpret the visiting Slovak manager from his Slovak into English yes. for any British journalists. But in the post-match press conference, the journalists were not interested in the Slovak manager. They were only interested in Alex Ferguson. And the interpreter that had come with the Slovak team, Vladimir, I'd got to know him a bit over the couple of days. Three minutes before we were due to go into this press conference, he came up to me and he said, Paul, Paul, will you do me a favour? Would you mind interpreting both ways in doing the whole press conference? So that means interpreting out of English into Slovak, meaning oh me speaking Slovak, which, yeah. you know, I... I'm fairly comfortable with, but it's not usually the way that interpreters go. Usually you interpret and translators into your own native language. Yes, you know better. Yeah. So I said, uh, well, yeah, I, I can do. And I knew that would mean having to interpret for Alex Ferguson. And I said, but, but why? Is there something wrong? He said, it's Alex Ferguson. I can't understand a word he says. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and I felt, I felt for him. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, he, he had trouble understanding what Alex Ferguson was yeah, saying to yeah. interpret it into Slovak. Whereas, yes. of course, I could understand yeah, course. Alex Ferguson that, perfectly well. Yes. Oh. And you forget that, not necessarily just understanding English, it's understanding the different intonations of how people speak English. Yes. It can be very, very difficult for yeah. a, a non-native English speaker yeah, to absolutely. get to grips with. Yeah. Yes. You've got to know both languages <laughs> you know quite well and yeah. sometimes it's not so easy to understand what people are saying yes yeah um so that yeah that's that's kind of more or less the only interpreting i've done i mean if there were slovak sports teams coming to play in in the uk every day of the week i might have been able to make a career out of that but, <laughs> but i, I realized that, that wasn't going to be a go <laughs> but um and but that was consecutive interpreting where you are listening to somebody speak you take notes you're trying to remember what they're saying yeah they stop. Yes. And then the interpreter speaks. So that's yes. called consecutive interpreting. Yes. I mean, in that case, actually, Alex Ferguson didn't want to stop because uh, yeah. they, Man United won 3 0. Um, he was in a good mood. He just wanted to talk. Of course. Um, yes. He was speaking to the UK journalists. The idea that he had to stop for an interpreter who would interpret his words into Slovak for it a very small work. number of Slovak yeah. journalists that he wasn't interested in. So I actually had to. Uh, I actually had to. Uh, interrupt him and they'd warned me in advance they'd said the people at, at Mount United they'd said you know you will have to just interrupt him he won't stop for you yeah you have to interrupt him so that you can interpret so eventually I did he didn't seem to appreciate that he kind of gave me a, a well, dark look when I interrupted yeah. him but um but that's consecutive interpreting yes and then you've got an, in the EU system my colleagues who work as interpreters they're doing simultaneous or conference interpreting where the interpreter is in a soundproofed booth mm. the speakers are on microphones in in a chamber say in the european parliament yeah um and the interpreter is listening through headphones and is speaking into a microphone and those people that want to listen to their interpretation have headphones on and they can choose the channel yeah, yeah they choose yeah. in to yeah. tune into the different language yes. so in, yeah so in the eu we have 24 official languages the 27 member states of course, all use different languages, yes, uh, yeah. and the ones that they nominate that they want to use 
as an official language in the context of the EU, there end up being 24 of those because some countries share a language, yeah. like French and German and so on. Yes, yes. So there are 24 so-called official languages. So if you go and listen to um, a debate in the European Parliament, and you know there's, there's a public area, visitors area, um, the different members of the European Parliament will speak different languages. I mean, some of them, even if they're not English speakers, they might choose to speak in English. But generally, yeah. uh, when I used to go and follow the debates there, they would speak in their own language. Yes, and yes. if you couldn't understand that language, you had to put the, uh, the headphones okay. on, so listen the to the interpreter. Europe, yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was there, yeah. 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 And um, yeah, and you turn the dial, and you've got yes. a choice of twenty-four languages yeah, to listen into. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, it's a big machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but actually, you just reminded me because in Kosovo, for the meetings that I was involved in between Kosovo Albanians and then the Serbs from Belgrade, so we were speaking. The language was English, Albanian, and Serbian, but we had no booths. We, it was just literally everybody talking over the table, all at the same time. And the first time I heard this when I was speaking English, I was thinking, this is so rude. Everybody's talking over the top of me, <laughs> completely unaware because I'd never been in that environment before, that actually they had to because it was the only way that they could keep up with me yeah. and understand and, uh, and to be able to interpret enough to the people either side of them. But it was, inc it was actually very distracting trying to keep your train of thought and you're, you're half listening into these two other languages both being spoken at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's a and it's an amazing skill. It is. It's an incredible uh, skill. Uh, simultaneous interpreting. To and, be and able to to be able to almost, I mean, at times when I was speaking, they would go, Emma, Emma, you've got to stop, stop, wait a minute, wait a minute, because you you don't fully appreciate how what well, I didn't at the beginning anyway, how difficult it is to encapsulate everything that you're trying to say, uh, and then translate it in your brain, and then get it out in your your language getting the right meaning across as well and then also they want to then ask a question so it meant meetings were incredibly slow as a result because because then they would want to ask a question and they would ask it they'd have to tell the translator the translator would then have to translate it to me in english and backwards and forwards it would go it, it made me fully appreciate how the the role of both the both translators and interpreters and and how um how valuable they are and how little they're acknowledged, perhaps more so now. Yeah, the, the best ones are invisible, a bit like translators, a bit like football referees. Yes. Um, if you don't notice them, that means they're doing a good job. Yeah, it's a phenomenal skill, and, and, and that's essentially why I don't think I went into it, because I, I don't think I'm good enough to do it at the level that you need to do it at, at a simultaneous level. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm much happier being a, a written translator, mm -hmm. a, a translator where um, you know, if you don't know a word on the page, you you, you can sit back, open a dictionary, <laughs> yeah, so take ask the time. person in the next door office, have a think about Google it. it, Google, yeah, uh, and then you find it, and then you you know, then you can perfect the the turn of phrase, and you can polish it, and it's you got perfect word. Yeah. Whereas interpreters, whatever's coming in, they have to put something out, even if they don't understand everything. And there must be yeah, yeah. occasions where they don't understand words, but I think you have to know a language better to be an interpreter because you have to be able to deal with idioms and colloquialisms and jokes and cultural references yes, yes. to be able to make sense of them in the language and as a translator you come across those and you might be able to research them yeah. an interpreter you can't generally no, no, no. so i think you need to know the language better than a translator needs to know it yes and you need to be fluent and articulate in the, your own language the language you're interpreting into definitely 
now with London becoming more and more multicultural and noticing, particularly in the bookshop, I mean, my aim was to try and get books written by authors from all around the world. But in fact, that was quite difficult and challenging at times to achieve because they hadn't been translated into English mm. or some had, but the translation was known to be not a good one. But I know that is changing and the demand for translated books is probably at an all-time high, I would say. Not talking from any facts and figures here, but just from what I experienced. And I mean, certainly for our book club, we had the Polish book. Yes, uh, Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. That's right, Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Yeah, by Olga Tokarczuk, the the Polish writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature recently. Yes, and uh, we were lucky enough through you to have the translator. Yes, Antonio Lloyd-Jones. Yes, to be with us. And, And it was very... It was very insightful to hear her take on being a translator as well and the importance of being able to pick up, as as you were saying, the nuances of writers, of what they're trying to get across in a way that we can understand, or certainly in in this country, with our humour, that it comes across with a kind of British or English humour, whatever you want to call it, rather than a Polish humour. But at the same time that translators don't lose the core message or essence or flavour of the author's style of writing because it could make or break both the author and I suppose the translator too. Yes. I just wonder what your thoughts were on, on this. From it's, a, it's a huge area. Sorry, it's a big question. Isn't yeah, it? no, it is. And it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, and there's lots of things to pick up there. Well, first of all, translation and how you do translation there's a there's a there's a vast academic field now of translation studies studying how best to translate different types of document but i mean mainly concerned with translating literature yes but going back to that point about how much translated literature there is there was this figure that that was cited a lot of the time of three percent of books that were bought in english-speaking countries so the uk and uh, the united states mainly uh, were in translation whereas if you go to italy and Spain, the yeah. the proportion of books that people buy there, much higher proportion of books there, are translations from other languages. Yes. Whereas, in English reading countries and cultures, we are much less likely to read translations of books from from other places. But that figure has started to go up a bit, as far yeah. as I understand it. The latest figures I've seen is sort of nearly five percent, which is still low. But I think there is starting to be more generally this greater adventurousness in wanting to read literature from other parts of the world yes, and yeah. um, not seeing a translation of something from another country as being sort of second best to reading something originally written in English. Yes. And appreciating that the translator is a talented creative author in their own right. Yeah. And that they are capturing the experience of the original in a form that you can understand and read. And appreciate. And appreciate, yes. Hopefully, yes. Yes, that's the idea. I must say, years ago, I always had this idea of, oh, I don't really want to read a translation. I'd much rather read it in the original language. It always yeah. felt like kind of second best to being able to read something in the original language. But when you can't read the language and you don't have the resources to yeah. spend 20 years learning Japanese yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, but there is something there that's worth having access to yes, yes. in that other language, then it comes through a translator. So yeah. actually, my perception of translations now has gone completely the opposite direction. And as well as um, the travelling through book club, I'm in 
one other book club we met last night actually where we read only translated literature okay and we've read some fantastic books the book that we read last night is from moldova okay a place i've never been to and don't know yes. much about but it's a really funny is it uh, yeah. book and a really good translation originally written in russian in yes in russian mm -hmm. by a russian-speaking author in moldova moldova's kind of half russian-speaking yes, half, half romanian speaking yeah. yes. yeah. but then within the field of translation there is there are these tendencies some people they talk about domesticating and foreignizing translations so when you come across some element of the original which is very specific to that place yes do you in your translation do you try to change that for the equivalent in the country or the culture that you're translating into so if somebody speaks with a really strong i don't know krakow accent yes, in, yes. or uses a lot of krakow slang in your translation do you say right what am i going to pick for krakow let's say edinburgh and <laughs> you, so you get that person speaking with an edinburgh accent or edinburgh slang and so on. or mm. or do you just try and keep it as krakowian slang so that people can see when they're reading it oh this is uh, this is something slightly foreign about it yeah yeah um, there's schools of thought on on which approach you take i think if you open the book if it's a good read if it gets across to the reader what the experience that the author was intending for language he wrote or she wrote it in yes you've probably done a, a good enough job but yeah it was really interesting when antonia joined the book club it was definitely um, she translated one part and then someone else translated another part was that or was that to another book where there was two of them who were i'm not sure i, th I think it, i think it might have been it w what it was was uh in that book drive your plow over the bones of the dead the title is actually uh, a quote from a poem or something written by Blake, That's William Blake. Was. Yes. And it within the... the book, one of the characters in the book is a translator who translates Blake into Polish. That's right. And yes. so she had to deal with how do you translate that process of translating, uh, writing about translating uh, Blake into Polish. But yes. you know, yeah, yeah, you, do you translate it back from the translator's translation yes. or the original? <laughs> Yeah, yeah so she, she had to do a bit of juggling there, but yeah, uh, yeah. it was very, very successful. I met her because, well, partly in, in the outreach job I was doing for the EU, my job was getting to know people and helping organise some events in the field of translation, including literary translation, so I came across her that way. Yes, yes. But um, having never done literary translation myself, only this, this governmental, administrative, legal translation. When I came into that job and started meeting literary translators, inevitably you say to yourself, oh, I wonder if I could have a go at that. Yeah. There are some courses, so there's a couple of summer schools, week-long summer schools in the UK. There's two main ones. One is based in Norwich, and the other one used to be based in London. Mm -hmm. and the last couple of years it's moved to different institutions. This year it's going to be at Bristol University, although right. it's online, yes. where professional top-level literary translators do a week of tuition for anybody that wants to come and, and study with them. I spent a week with Antonia and some other translators translating from Polish. Okay. And I, I chose Polish to be the language I wanted to give literary translation a try on for, for various reasons. So that's how I met Antonia really and got to know her and sort of since became friends. I mean, she probably knows Poland better than almost any other British person there is because she spent decades reading the literature of the country but getting to know the culture getting yeah. to know its authors spending a lot of time there yes yeah 
as she knows the country, the culture, the language inside out. She's one of the, the best translators of Polish, certainly in this country, if not mm. the world, into mm-hmm. English. Actually, it would be a hard act to follow then. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't even try. I wouldn't even try but, uh, and she's prolific, absolutely yeah. prolific. She's yeah. done lots and lots. Has she, yes. Yeah. Perhaps I should get her on the podcast. <laughs> but I did also note that you'd won, you'd won a prize for translating, was it Polish poetry? Yes, it was a, yeah, it's, it sounds very grand. Um, it was it was called a translation challenge. Okay. So it's um, there's some literary organisations in Wales, and they organise a translation challenge every year yeah. of poetry, and they choose a different language each okay. year. Okay. And they invite translators to take these poems in yes. whichever language, and translate them, and you submit your translation anonymously. Yes. And then they get a judge who's a an established translator that picks out the best translation. So a couple of years ago, the language that they chose for this challenge happened to be Polish. Yes. And the the challenge was to translate three poems by a Polish author who actually lives in the UK. At that time, she lived on the Isle of Wight. Mm-hmm. And her poems were all about the Isle of Wight in this challenge. She now lives in Hastings. Who is, who is she? She's called Violeta Krzegowiczewska. Violeta Greg, for short. Okay. Yeah, and Antonio was actually the, the judge. Okay. Uh, but because all the submissions are done anonymously, she, she, she didn't, and I didn't tell known. her that I had entered it. Yeah. Uh, she didn't know whose work she was judging. Yeah, and she picked mine out as, uh, as the winner. Yeah. To my, to my surprise. <laughs> uh, and perhaps to hers as well when she found out it was me. That it had was done. you. <laughs> uh, so that was a nice feeling, actually. Yes. Because yeah. um, when you spend your life translating a very different kind of literature, sort of laws and technical documents. Yes, yeah. And you get comfortable with that. Then the idea of moving to something like poetry, and I've never been a big poetry reader, or I don't really have a literary background. Yes. I've not done huge amounts of real literary reading. So the idea of, of having to do something like that feels like a big step up, just to me anyway. Yeah, yes. Um, no, well so to, done, to, have sort of, to have had that endorsement give me some confidence in it that I can perhaps do some more. So when you're not translating legal documents or poetry and interpreting and being at Old Trafford, <laughs> you're also a, a rock climber and, and a walker, a hill walker. Yeah, uh, growing up in Lancashire, we were never too far from the Peak District or North Wales or the Lake District. You know, get out in the hills and so go yeah. walking. Yes. Um, so i always done favorite, that. You have a, do you have your favourite place that you like to go walking in the UK? I have actually, right in the place where I grew up, just outside Bolton, there's a bit of the Pennines which sort of sticks into just above my hometown and there's a hill there called Rivington Pike, just sort of a small round shaped hill with a little stone tower on the top of it Yeah. and I've been climbing up that since I was a kid and I've been up it dozens, hundreds of times. That's my life. Actually, it knows that's probably, all your stories. It does. It does. <laughs> it's very. It's a kind of. It's a. Yeah. It's a very important place to me. Yes. yes. Um, and so I suppose that's my favourite place. And abroad, where would you go? Where's been? Where's been somewhere oh. that's really? Uh, I've mainly. You. I've mainly hiked in Europe actually, because a lot of the places I travel to are linked with the languages that I learn. I've ended up, actually, spending most of my, travel and tourism time in Europe. Mm-hmm. I really like the hills and mountains of Eastern Europe. I was in the Tatra Mountains, which is on the border between Poland and Slovakia last, okay. last summer, you know, when there was a window, when the infection yes. rates went right down yeah. and they were... Everyone escaped if yes, you could. Yes, <laughs> and I managed to get away for a week of language classes yes. in Poland. Then I took a week of holiday where I, I went 
hiking and climbing in the Tatra Mountains. And uh, yeah, the Tatra, the Tatra Mountains. Tatra Mountains, that's right. They're yeah. The, yeah, the mountains on the border between Poland and the south of Poland and mm-hmm. Slovakia. Yeah, I suppose if, if you could only go to one place, it might be there actually, because I'd be able to speak to the locals as well. And that's an important part of it, I find. Yes, yes. Um, have you ever gone anywhere where you haven't been able to speak the language? I mean, I know you mentioned doing your trips along the border, along the Iron Curtain route, and not speaking Italian, but actually gone to a country and just said, well, I know how to say hello, good morning, thank you, goodbye. But no more than and that. no more than that. Yeah. Or do you feel uncomfortable being a language person doing that? Would you always make sure that you knew more, a bit more than that before you went somewhere? I think I'm always conscious that there's a a dimension of the potential experience that I'm missing out on if I don't have the language. I mean, that shouldn't stop you exploring places that you haven't been to before. You still get something from them. Yeah. I went to India and Bangladesh a few years ago with my dad. We went watching cricket, big cricket fans in our family. Yes. uh, So we went watching the England cricket team play in in Bangladesh. other than of course there's a level of English spoken there yes, yeah. uh, but I couldn't speak in any of the the local languages so that was that was a place oh, how was that as an experience that was uh, yeah I think it was my first real experience of Asia that was quite something else yes I mean just uh, an onslaught on the senses of sounds colors noises sights Taste. we went tastes as well yes we went to Chittagong which is Bangladesh's second city mm-hmm. for the first match and that I think that was my first the first time I'd experienced Asia on the Indian subcontinent. Yes, yeah. The traffic, the number of people, I mean, the, the poverty, the destitution, the violence as well. I saw, I saw people being beat up in the streets, apparently for having stolen something very small. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a big crowd of people around them. And I said to somebody at the edge of the crowd, what, what, what's happening and what will happen? And, oh, yes, they will carry on beating them until they die. And uh, this was on our first night there, so I I went to try and find the police, and because you know, what 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 was you do? Yeah, Um, the police seemed to think that was rather odd that I wanted to go and get get them to get break break up this uh, this beating that was going on. Yeah, yeah. Did they? Well, they eventually they, they, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't actually that far as the crow flies, and it was quite quick to walk there. But they insisted on going there in their vehicles which in the local traffic, which was absolutely manic, I've never seen anything like it, was very slow. Yeah. And by the time we got there, it had, it, it had all broken up. There was wow. a few stragglers there and the police asked what had been going on and they told me that the, the two guys that were being beaten up were, had survived. And all this had been happening actually right in at the front of the hospital, right. right outside a hospital. And apparently they were both in the hospital, <laughs> but they had both survived. Um, How extraordinary. Yeah, so it was the first experience. Yeah. That's a place where there was enough English yes. that I was able to do all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though I would love to have been able to speak the local language. I guess I've been to Arabic-speaking countries a couple of times, Jordan and the UEA, mm-hmm. and I don't know any Arabic at all. Yes, for a holiday purpose. Yes, one of them was another cricket trip. <laughs> Uh, the England cricket team was you playing really against are. Pakistan. <laughs> yes, uh, fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. No, I do love cricket. Um, and a holiday to Jordan was that was just a holiday to see the country. Yes, yeah. And uh, yeah, a, we, a week in the UAE to watch uh, the England cricket team play the Pakistani cricket team because at the time they couldn't play in Pakistan because of the 
the terrorist threat to visiting players. Right. I went to Korea um, at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. I went to Japan for a language conference and it coincided with the Rugby World Cup. Oh, wow. Oh, so, that and was we good got, timing. We, yeah, we, I got tickets for the, a couple of the rugby matches. Yes. Um, and then, and as part of that trip, I went to Korea for the first time. And even though I'd learned evening classes, a little bit of Korean a few years previously, I, I remember zero yes. of it. So, yeah, that was a place I couldn't uh, communicate at all. English is prevalent enough, isn't it, that you can get by anywhere. Yes, yes. But like I say, I'm, I always know there's more experience that can be had if you've got even sometimes just a little and bit of the a language. smattering of language, yeah. yeah, yes. So you've done a lot of travels around the world. I mean, it's a big place, the world, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but from all the places that you've visited, is there one place that's had a huge impact on you? I think it would be, it would be Slovakia, I think, mm -hmm. for the reasons I was saying earlier about I ended up going there at a very formative time in my life and I learned a lot about myself and about the world, realised that I was a lot more naive yeah. than I had realised. Yes, um, yeah. And yeah, it, it, shaped, it shaped what I've ended up doing as an adult for my career in terms of working now with the language every day as a translator. Yeah. But also I did a bit of journalism there and I was a journalist for 10 years before I went back into translation. So. It was the experience that I got there that, that helped me get into a journalism job later. So I would say that that place has had the most uh, impact on me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the things from, from just talking to you is that home has been so many different places for you over the years, it's, it appears. Mm. So where do you consider home? Do you feel it's here or is it Europe? Do you feel more European? Do you feel more British? Do you feel neither? Well, that's a good post-Brexit question, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I feel both. I still feel very proud to be British, just just about. Yes. Um, I still feel very attached to Britain and the UK. Mm. Um, I do feel U European. I'm not sure I would put European ahead of a British identity. I know a lot of people's reaction to what's happened with the last few years with the, the Brexit vote and now leaving the EU is for them to have preferred a European identity mm -hmm. I still try and juggle both yes I still call home I, I still refer to my hometown uh, Bolton as home I'm lucky that my my parents are still alive and still live there yes and my my brother is there so it's sort of where I was born and brought up where when there isn't a pandemic on where I go back still fairly often it's where I I, I feel my identity is rooted there even though I haven't lived there for many many years yes you know I'm probably one of these people who gets very patriotic or uh, <laughs> nostalgic and sentimental about a place you know, only because you're not there anymore yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but when you do go back is it a case that you just feel more comfortable and it's almost like because everything's so familiar you don't really have to think about everything because you yes. know where everything is yeah I feel I feel it's my home area I like knowing the place you sort of tune into the way people speak. It's it's familiar, linguistically, culturally. On on the other hand, the, the the fact that I spent most of my life away, the fact that I was, perhaps the fact that I was drawn to want to explore uh, the world away from there and end up living away from there means yeah. there's a part of me that's maybe not 100% comfortable there. Yes, um, you yeah. know, sometimes when I go back and I do sense that I'm now an outsider, 
or I've had experiences that make me an outsider. Um, and if I had to go back and live there permanently, well, number one, I'm not sure what work I would get at yeah. this point, but I might, I might end up having a very different perception of it. Yeah, yeah. From the perspective of being, at the moment, being able to live in London or Brussels once the pandemic finishes, but then to visit back that area, to see family and so on, often in that situation, it just feel comfortably home. Beyond that, I'm not sure where I would feel home, yeah. <laughs> London, Brussels and, and Slovakia are the places I've spent the longest. Um, and they each feel a bit like home in different ways. Yeah, you know. yeah. Home is such a, for me, is such a, it's such a difficult thing to, to identify where home is. It's, it's, I think for me, it's where you feel comfortable at the present time. And my, home is many places for me. I don't think it's ever going to ever be one place. Yeah. I think um I think that's it's nice and I'm comfortable with that and I'm I'm glad I can be like that. <laughs> that you can just take it as it is and you can go somewhere and just embrace it and think, Oh, that's actually home. Even if you can't speak the language, I can sometimes be places where it just feels for that moment in time it's it's home for me. I know that's harder for other people to yeah, it might, be, it might be elements of a culture or something that feel good to you or that you have an affinity with. Yes, or something. exactly. Yeah. There's something there and you're not necessarily, you can't always put your finger on what it, actually it is that makes you feel at home, but it just, it just does, you know. Yeah. In Bolton, do people that you know back home, do they think that you have a, a London accent now or do they think you're still a Bolton boy? I'm not sure. Because I can hear your accent, but I wonder okay. whether. I wonder whether. I'm not sure about London. I, I, I'm not as strong as uh, as my brother or my father would mm. be, for instance, who spent their whole lives there. Yes. Um, and you know, of course, the, lang the the accent starts to get stronger the longer I stay there. Whether that's subconscious or conscious, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I mean, people still come to me. I mean, not when I'm back in Bolton, but around. They say, "Oh, you, you must be from up north somewhere." So it's obviously still there, but I think it's yeah. been very sort of filtered and squashed and squished into different directions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. There's still some vowels which are very diagnostic of where I come from, like, yes. like the vowel in the word vowel, <laughs> yeah. um, which uh, I seem not to be able to get rid of, even if I wanted to. And it, does that come out in when you speak Polish? Oh, good question. I don't know, actually. No, I think I've, I've always been... I think one thing about learning languages is being a good mimic and I've always been a fairly good mimic of other accents yes you know, accents in English for instance so my mother's from Ireland originally mm -hmm. and most of my relatives you know, she's from a big family so most of the relatives cousins and uncles and aunts are Irish yeah and so from very young we were exposed to people speaking with Irish accents you know very distinctive beautiful wonderful language yes and I think I don't know whether that sensitized me to understanding interpreting getting used to different accents and then being able to reproduce them okay I mean, I've never yep. I've never spoken in an Irish accent naturally no. um, but I've not I can, I can put on the accent and I can sort of do I'm fairly good at doing accents and I think then when I'm learning other languages I'm quite good at then mimicking the accents of that language so I'm quite good at speaking Polish in a Polish accent okay so yeah um, but the problem is when I start making grammatical mistakes and then if you're speaking to a Polish person, they think, hang on, this person sounds Polish, but 
they're making terrible mistakes that no <laughs> Polish person would ever make. What on earth's going on here? <laughs> and that's, that's the problem. If you, you, you can fool people by mimicking the accent well, you can fool them into thinking that they know your language. Yes, and then often yeah. they will then start sort of speaking much quicker than they would do <laughs> and using vocabulary and, uh, that you don't know. And, th- and, then, and then it becomes obvious to them, oh, actually, no, no, you're not Polish, are you? Of course you're not Polish. <laughs> um, well, so you had them fooled for a second, <laughs> yeah. or a few seconds even. Uh, when I lived in Slovakia, I got, you know, at the end of the three and a half years, I had got to a point where my, vo- my vocabulary and understanding uh, were good enough and my accent, I'd always been able to do the accent quite yes. well. I did get to the point where people thought I was uh, Slovak, a local, and if, and if they thought there was something a bit weird about how I spoke, then they thought maybe I was from a, a particular region of Slovakia the that they were, yeah, yeah, or from the east, you know, usually, because in the east of Slovakia they, they speak in a slightly different way, so they might okay. usually think, oh, he's from the east somewhere. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you know, the longer I spoke, then, then it would eventually become clear to them that, oh no, he's actually a foreigner that's just learned the language. Yes, yes. Um, but it's a nice feeling when you get to that level. Yes, yeah, so people just, just yeah. automatically believe you to be kind of one of them, as it were. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul, we've been talking for quite a long time. I've been asking you loads and loads of questions, but is there anything that you wanted me to ask you that I haven't asked you? Yeah, we've arranged over a lot of things. It's been a really have. enjoyable <laughs> chat. Well, I mentioned in the introduction that we might talk about cross-country skiing, only that that's oh, yes. something yeah. else that Where I'm, did you learn cross-country I'm skiing? interested in doing. And, and it's also sort of potential for a book project as well. So okay, yes, please go ahead. Uh, I don't, it's something I only ever tried once and I was absolutely terrible at it, but I feel I should have another go at it. So but maybe you should... It's great fun. I, I've always liked running yes. and hiking and being in woods and in mountains. And uh, cross-country skiing combines all that, the best of that. Well, and I also, when I do it, which is not very often, I also like downhill skiing. Yes. Um, yes. And cross-country skiing just combines all those things, and it's really enjoyable. When I lived in that time, when I lived in Slovakia, mm-hmm. uh, um, just north of the city of Bratislava, there's a there's a range of hills called the Male Carpati, um, the, the the Lesser Carpathians, and used to go hiking in those hills, and it gets a lot of snow in the in the winter. Yeah. And we were on a hike one day, and we saw this guy cross-country skiing through the, the woods and I'd never really I mean I kind of had seen and knew about cross-country skiing but you know in the UK we don't uh, it's not, enough it's not something that we do really is it <laughs> no. and perhaps in in parts of Scotland and I thought I said oh, that, that looks good so I, went, I basically I went down to the shop bought some cross-country skis and sort of strapped them on got the bus up to the the top of the trail in the, the edge of the city where the hills started and started doing some cross-country skiing and then when I moved to Belgium, so I lived in Belgium for many years, believe, yes. believe it or not, when it snows in Belgium, on the eastern part of the country, there's high ground mm-hmm. in the Ardennes on the border with Germany, which is actually ideal for cross-country skiing. Okay. So there's, there's actually a lot of good cross-country ski trails yeah. when it snows, which isn't every year. So the years that I lived in Belgium, every year or two, I'd be able to go and do a couple of outings on my skis yes yes and i enjoyed it because it was like going for a hike or a run in these lovely wooded forested environments and then i thought yeah, i've got to maybe i should get a bit more serious about it so i i signed up and did a a week's holiday in a proper cross-country ski area in italy mm-hmm. a few years ago with the tutor and everything and it was fantastic and i i got myself some new skis and since then i've taken it fairly seriously and started to do 
some cross-country ski races so the equivalent of like marathons in running yes there are these cross-country ski marathons there's a circuit you can do so lots of different countries that have a tradition of cross-country skiing they each have a a, a long distance race right and these have been put into a series and if you compete or if you finish 10 of these races yeah you know, there's about 20 countries that hold one of these races and if you do 10 of them then uh, there's a little passport thing that they produce and you get a little stamp for each one you do okay and when you reach 10 stamps yeah. you're you're declared to be a, a cross-country master i think they call it that's what I'm trying to do at the moment is uh, oh, brilliant. do enough of these uh, cross-country ski races to yeah. get my stamps in this little passport so I can I, I can call myself a, a cross-country <laughs> ski master. I'm not very fast. I always come, <laughs> I always finish very close to the, the bottom, you know. I'm, but you finish. But I finish and I, I enjoy it. That's the main thing. I just I really it, enjoy. It's the, meant to be uh, incredibly good for your health as well, isn't it? It's a good workout. It's really good. Um, yeah, it's good whole body workout. You use your upper body because you... You're pushing on the poles as well as yeah. pushing off with your legs as well. Yes, yeah. it's really it's really good exercise. And when yeah. you get into a rhythm, you can you, you reach a speed where you're going faster than walking. Yes. Um, oh, if you're really good, you go faster than running. I can't quite go as mm -hmm. faster than I would do if I was running, except on the downhill sections. Yes. Uh, but cross country skiing's got lots of uphill sections as well as downhills. Yes. Um, but you get into a rhythm, and it, it's a really lovely feeling physically of being you know, feeling sort of in a groove of moving at this lovely nice rhythmic pace so i really enjoy it it's just mm -hmm. a shame yeah over the last year i haven't been able to do any yes i did one in uh, i did one race in austria in january last year and i was hoping to do another two or even three last season the yep. season's usually about sort of december to april um but uh, yeah i couldn't do any more obviously and then this year most of them have been cancelled or called off and, right. and actually they're starting to organize virtual cross-country ski races so you can still take part in these races even though they're not happening yeah you do it in your own country okay. and in your own area yeah, yeah and if you don't have snow then you're allowed to do it by bicycle or roller ski so roller skiing oh, true, i don't know if you've seen big, it that's quite a big thing in hyde park isn't it yeah it's roller skiing. yeah and when i moved to london that's actually where i started to get a bit more serious about the cross-country skiing is okay i i joined up with the people who do roller skiing in hyde park and learned how to do that and uh, yeah it looks weird and whenever you whenever you go around there you get you get funny looks from people <laughs> walking in the park and they ask you what's that then um yeah you use the poles like you would do for skiing and you use the same boots and the same bindings as your skis just exactly the same boots yes um but then instead of long skis it's sort of a thing it's a couple of feet long or a foot and a half um with a small one small wheel at either end it's like a very long uh, roller blade okay a long and thin roller blade which and your your boot is attached to it and your heel is free yes like in cross-country skis and uh, and it really mimics the action of cross-country skiing really right. well okay, and it's so it's put it does train all the parts of the body that you need to train okay so i've done a lot more of that uh, really in the last few years than actually on snow yes. when there was snow in london for the one day that it was here did you have your skis with you to, to go out and i i haven't uh i've got my roller skis mm. but my skis are actually stranded in brussels at the moment oh, are they? Oh, yeah no. so, so there was part of me wishing it would snow a lot because I love snow yes. and there was part of me thinking oh I hope it doesn't snow too much because you haven't got your like over the nearly seven years that I've been living in London I 
always wanted it to snow enough <laughs> that I could what I really wanted to do was to ski to work that would have been the best yes and, yeah. uh, and I thought that would be so frustrating if it actually happens when I don't have my skis <laughs> there was a couple of years ago I don't know if you remember where it was really we had a heavy snowfall yes yeah and I and I put the skis on and I got as far as the main road Kennington Road uh, and I thought I was going to be able to get all the way to the office but Kennington Road was just not it was not deep enough the cars oh. had already churned it up no, a bit too just... much so I turned back yeah uh, so I didn't manage to get all the way to work that <laughs> oh, at time. At least you tried. <laughs> yeah, but I went, I was, our square is quite quiet. It doesn't get much road traffic, so I was able to go around the square a few times. Yes, yeah. And I've been using the roller skis to do a bit of exercise around our square as well okay. and, and around Hyde Park. But I've seen people in this park doing roller skiing yeah, a few it's, times. Yeah, I think it's something to try, I think. Add, yeah. I'll add it to the list of things to try. <laughs> yeah. So in the meantime, we have circumnavigated Battersea Park probably about three or four times <laughs> yeah. while we've been chatting away. And it's been lovely talking to you, Paul, and just catching up because it's been a while since we've seen each other. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been great to see and, you. Yeah. Um, and are you, are you around for the next book club? You're in the Travelling Through Book Club? Yes, the next book club. We're talking about Poland and Polish writers. We're reading uh, Joseph Conrad. Yes. Uh, the Secret Agent. Yeah. And uh, I just opened it last night to Did start you? reading it. Oh, well so done. yes, I will I'll hopefully be at the next book club. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, I hope to see you there. I, I haven't been around as much, but um, perhaps I will get there this month. I haven't read it yet, so possibly not. <laughs> but there we go. And the sun is just starting to break through now typically as we finish but it's been a few uh, signs of it isn't there yes. and, and the river has come right up hasn't it, it i has, mean not yeah. all the way but uh, it's higher than it was when we set off yeah i think fantastic well as a parting shot if you um had to recommend to our podcast listeners the most appropriate language to learn in the world today which one would you choose oh gosh that's a question so i just put you on the spot i there. think i think it would have to it's whichever language is spoken in a country or by a culture that you feel an affinity with, a place you want to go, a place and a culture you want to know better. Yes. Make that what decides which language you choose because that way you'll stick with it. Yeah. You'll have a reason to want to carry on learning it because it will start to unlock that country and that culture. Yes. Uh, and hopefully you'll have a positive feedback effect. The more you learn, the more you then want to learn. Yes. Um, that's if you're learning it for pleasure if it's learning for strictly professional purposes and it's just okay if I, I just want to use it for a job and to make the most money which language should i learn that's a tough one as well isn't it maybe maybe spanish maybe german mm, okay. uh, we still do a lot of business with germany spanish we get a lot of contact with uh, different parts of the world south america as well as spain russian maybe and probably Mandarin Chinese, yeah. given that China is only going to become yes, more yes. and more important so in our a, lives. So quite a few languages to yeah, choose. Yeah, you've, 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 you've got plenty to work on yes, there for, no, for a while. <laughs> a few lifetimes worth. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul, for being on the podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> and, um, thank you for inviting you, me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And to all you podcast listeners out there, I hope it's been inspiring for you and you've enjoyed listening to Paul's story of London, the world and life in his life so far. Please do share the podcast, subscribe, leave us a review if you can. We'll be back again next week with another podcast. But until then, take care and thanks for listening.